Let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would enable us to understand your purposes, to see the hope that you have given us, and to live as children of hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was a boy, my father and a friend of the family went on a cruise up the coast of uh, Connecticut in our small 19-foot sailboat. We left Westport, which was my hometown, and headed east. We spent a night in New London, long story there. And then making our way up the coast, we hit fog, and it was terrifying. One moment, a ferry, huge ferry boat, crossed in front of our tiny little sloop within about 100 feet, which, believe me, was close enough to scare us to death. Finally, we heard voices on a beach, and so we decided that we must be near the shore, and we anchored. Our guess from our compass work in looking at charts was that we were at the entry channel to Stonington Harbor, which was our destination. But because of the fog, we couldn't really see anything. We decided not to proceed in toward the shore any further. We knew where we weren't. <laughs> we were not in Westport anymore, which is where we began. We were not in New London, where we'd started out that morning. But we did not know where we were. And so we anchored in order to wait for the fog to lift. We had a hope to meet my mom uh, at some place for dinner in Stonington, and it's a good thing that we waited as long as we did, because we had actually gone past Stonington Harbor by about 100 yards, and had we proceeded into shore, we would have hit the rocks and lost the ship. Now, I share that with you because I think much of the time in our Christian life, we have moments where we're in the fog, where we lose our bearings. We don't know where we are. We were therefore very ineffective. The plan B world around us is all that we can see, and we can be surrounded by disappointments. Thinking of a family that we know in the diocese, two fine Christian sons who got married within a short amount of time to two uh, fine Christian women. And if you'd looked at it, you would have said, here are two matches made in heaven. Remember the words of the song by James Taylor describing a young couple? It says they were true love written in stone. And that's, that's the way these two couples seemed. But in the span of one spring, one marriage failed, and the second one began to be on the rocks. And the family of these boys is crushed. There are seasons like that in our lives, 
Marsha alluded to this earlier, but there was one month when my father and Marsha's mother were both dying, our house flooded, our daughter, in the midst of a serious illness, broke her engagement and ended the relationship altogether because she found out that her fiancé had a consuming porn addiction. And that addiction was discovered by good friends of ours because he was a guest in their home using their computer. And at the same time, a lay leader I had asked to step down from her role then led a secret coup to remove me as rector. All the same month. Someone asked us at the time if our house had been built over an Indian burial ground. <laughs> we were disoriented. We needed to reacquire our bearings. Well, the readers of the letter to the Hebrews, these Jewish Christians, these Messianic Jews, likewise were disoriented by persecution and hardship. We've been looking at that together. And today we're going to look at the latter part of Hebrews chapter 12. And I want us to think of that sailing trip in the fog and give three questions to help us redirect our Christian lives, to get reoriented. First of all, where aren't we? Where aren't we? And then, where are we? And finally, as we were waiting for the fog to lift, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Well, where aren't we? Well, we're not at the beginning. By which I mean, going back to the timeline, we are not in Eden. Now, that may seem relatively self-evident. But that was the environment that we were designed for. A deathless life. And in therefore a sense, a timeless life. A perfect, peaceful life, full of wonder. That's what we were designed for. That was the plan A world. And I want to say that we're not in Eden because there's a part of us that longs for Eden. Think back to the time of Woodstock and all the kids of my generation heading to a concert. And as I look back at it, what they really wanted was to get to Eden. That was the idealism. It wasn't quite put in those terms most of the time, but it's interesting when uh, Joni Mitchell wrote a song about it afterwards entitled Woodstock, she had this line in it, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden in reference to Eden. Now, the fact that we were designed for Eden and that we long for Eden is still with us. I encourage Christians not to despise the environmental movement, first of all, because we live in God's world and we should be protecting it. But we need to understand that in environmentalism, there is a deeper longing a wish that the world here would somehow revert to Eden. 
And that longing is a built-in longing. But we're not in Eden. We're not at the beginning of the voyage. And we're not at Mount Sinai. And that's where we pick up in Hebrews 12, which you have in your booklets in front of you, in your service booklets. And we're in a slightly different translation. We can have the battle of the translations afterwards. But the, yours is close enough. <laughs> you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. What mountain? Sinai. That's what he's describing here. Now, he's speaking to Jewish Christians, to Hebrews, who were perfectly well aware of the Old Testament and of this experience. Mount Sinai was the start of Israel as a divinely ordered community. But it was also a place of a terrifying encounter with a holy God. People were told to keep away lest they die. And in our sinfulness, we dare not come directly into the presence of this holy God as is, with no mediator. Now, I think a lot of us, even as believers, spend a lot of time emotionally at Mount Sinai. We live in shame and guilt. We're so aware that we don't measure up. We have a fear of God. We live as if we were still at Mount Sinai. But by God's grace, we are not there. God the Father does not want to keep us at a distance. So where aren't we? We're not at Eden, and we're not, not, we are not at Mount Sinai. So the next question then is, where, where are we? And while we cannot see it physically, we are the new community. We are part of the new Jerusalem. Please remember, he's writing Jewish believers, and the new Jerusalem is founded by Jewish believers, and they're a part of us as well. We're the new Jerusalem, the new Mount Zion. As believers in Jesus, we've been called into the kingdom of God. Listen to the author of Hebrews describe our location. Even though it's an invisible location, even though we can't see it, it is where we are. And I'm just going to give some footnotes as we look at this description this morning. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Jerusalem was the earthly place of meeting God in his temple. But now it points to heaven itself, or the kingdom of heaven itself, God's kingdom. Please notice that it's a city that we are designed to be in community. We're not designed to be hermits. Goes on to say, we, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful, or in your case, festal assembly. Again, we can't see them, but that's where we are. You know, we say in our liturgy that we worship with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, but I wonder, do we really believe it? 
You know, there have been worship wars in the past couple of decades, and there's been seeker worship and traditional worship and my taste in music versus your taste in music. I wonder if we would frame the questions about appropriate worship differently if we realize that we were joining in the eternal worship, the unending worship, a worship full of angels in festal assembly. Would we look at things differently? One question that came to mind is, if I knew I was walking into worship and angels are there, worshiping along with us, or are we better joining their worship, would I be as likely to be late for church? What difference would it make if we understood that we're joining a worship service that's already in place, already taking part, and already going on? What difference would it make to our worship? I just want to ask the question. I'm not sure I even begin to know the answer. It goes on to say, you've come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. It's probably a reference to the fact that we are the church of Jesus. He's the firstborn, but we've joined him because we are now in the position of children of God. There's only one church. It's owned by Jesus. He's the firstborn. The firstborn in the culture of that day was the one who inherited everything from his father. And this church was paid for by Jesus on the cross. It says, we have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. God is our judge, and he's everyone's judge. In a world with radical injustice, there will be a day when everything that was wrong will be judged. And if we didn't believe that, not only would we believe a lesser view of God, but we'd have no way to understand how things could be righted because the injustice will be judged. But if God were only our judge, we would have no hope. It says he is also our perfecter. We are considered righteous through the work of Jesus. And then we are perfected, completed, finished. Perfecting starts here and will be fully realized in heaven. Now, I'm going to share with you a recurring dream I have. It was probably prompted by watching the original musical version of Peter Pan when I was a child. In my dream, I can fly. I can push off from anywhere and soar across a room or to the top of a tree. And when I think about that dream when I'm awake, I can still almost imagine it. But I have a much harder time imagining what it will be like to be perfected, to be perfect. Can you imagine your life without sin, 
without shame, without guilt, and life, a life in which you love God and others without hesitation or doubt or fear, where you only rejoice and you're never sad, a life without mixed motives and without emotional pain, an unscarred life, a perfected life. But that's where we've come to. We've come to that place where God is perfecting us now and will finish the process. We've come to Jesus, verse 24, the mediator of a new covenant. To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Like Jesus, Abel was killed unjustly. He was innocent. He'd done nothing wrong. In fact, he'd been obeying God. And Abel's blood cries out for God to bring punishment. But the writer here says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than a cry for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out on our behalf to the Father for mercy. We might say, Father, forgive them is the cry of Jesus' blood. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that that's where we actually are, though we don't see it yet. We are worshiping in the presence of God. We are surrounded by angels. We're being perfected. And Jesus is crying out for mercy on the basis of the cross. Now, how would your life change as a believer if you knew that that's where you are? If you were focused not on what is seen around you, but what is unseen. If your hope for resolution was set on Christ's promises rather than on your current distress, where aren't we? Eden, for sure. And neither are we at Mount Sinai to be living in terror of God. Where are we? Mount Zion the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, what are we waiting for? What is our ultimate hope? What will it be like when the fog lifts? We are waiting for the moment when the invisible reality becomes visible, when we see perfectly and are made perfect. We live in the hope of heaven. In 1977, someone named Pinin Barcelone won the opportunity to clear away 500 years of dirt, candle soot, grime, varnish, and poor attempts at touch-up on Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, The Last Supper. You could barely make out the, the picture. The project took 23 years. 
cleaning the painting one square inch at a time using microscopes. Everything that was an accumulation was cleared away until only the original was left. Until the beauty of the artist's original work could be seen at last. In Hebrews 12, verse 27, the writer makes it clear that creation will be removed and only the kingdom of God will remain. We are waiting to see what for now is unseen. Now, hoping for that is hard for us. Hoping for heaven is hard for us. I want to quote from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this. Most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who've died. One reason for this difficulty, Lewis goes on to say, is that we have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Another reason is that when the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it. Lewis continues, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise, Lewis concludes. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Heaven is hard for us. We haven't been trained to be thinking about it. Our hopes in the long run, should not lie here. Or we will be constantly disappointed. Well, what do we do while we wait? First of all, we put our hearts into worship, corporately and individually. Look at verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful... And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He's quoting from Exodus 24, 17. It says, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And so what the Hebrews writer is saying is, we're worshiping our God because he's glorious. You know, there's something magnificent about a huge fire. And they're saying, he's glorious, he's beautiful, he's wondrous. So what do we do in the meantime? We worship God in his glory and beauty and power and holiness. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, he spells out other ways to live while we're waiting. And I, we don't have time to look at it. I encourage you to go into it. But to summarize, he says we should focus on our relationships. We should love our brothers and sisters. We should love strangers and prisoners. We should honor God in our marriages. We should, we should define ourselves by whose we are rather than what we have. 
and we should honor and imitate Christian leaders. Just some of the things we do while we're waiting. But most of all, we look at Jesus because it says that in the midst of an ever-changing Plan B world, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are not to live longing for Eden or in fear at the base of Mount Sinai. We are part of the unseen heavenly Jerusalem. We're waiting for the unshakable kingdom of Jesus. This is God's glorious, eternal plan A for us in this temporary, fallen, and painful plan B world. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, give us an appreciation of where you've brought us. That you've called us into your eternal kingdom. That you've lavished love upon us. That you have secured a future for us. And that even now we can come into your presence and worship you. We ask, Lord, that you would build in us hope. Not based on our circumstances or the things that we see before us. But based on your character and your promises. As demonstrated in the resurrection of your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.